Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Miriam Solomon, Professor of Philosophy at Temple University. Her new book, Making Medical Knowledge, is just out from Oxford University Press. How are scientific discoveries transmitted to medical clinical practice? When the science is new, controversial, or simply unclear, how should a doctor advise his or her patients? How should information from large, randomized, controlled trials be weighed against the clinician's hard-won judgment from treating hundreds of patients? These are some of the questions that are considered in the epistemology of medicine. In Making Medical Knowledge, Solomon provides an historically grounded critical assessment of the methods used in recent decades to turn basic science into medical knowledge. These include consensus conferences, evidence-based medicine, translational medicine, and narrative medicine. Each of these methods, she concludes, has a place to play in what she calls an untidy methodological pluralism. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Miriam. Are you there? Um, Hello, Carrie. Yes, this is Miriam. Hi. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Thank you. Uh, I'm very happy to be talking with you today about your new book, Making Medical Knowledge, which kind of introduced me to the whole area in a way of of epistemology of medicine. Um, so before we get into the details of the book, I'd like to get a little bit of background about yourself, how you got to philosophy, um, and then how you came to write this particular book. Okay. Um, well, I got to philosophy in my teens, asking questions about the nature of the universe and the existence of God. Um, but I was also interested in science. So I was a science undergraduate and um, uh, concentrated in history and philosophy of science. This was at Cambridge. And then I decided I wanted to go into the philosophical issues more deeply and did a PhD in philosophy um, at Harvard, writing on the philosophy of Quine, who was an epistemologist, logician, philosopher of science. Um, And after that, I uh, became more applied and moved back into philosophy of science and wrote a book called Social Empiricism. And that was really a book in social epistemology of science. And as that book was received, I was asked to participate in a consensus conference, in a medical consensus conference for the surgery of trauma. And the invitation came because I had written 
about consensus and dissent in science. And in fact, they'd taken um, the um, less usual position of uh, thinking that dissent was very productive and consensus was worth questioning. So I thought I would go to this conference with all my questions about is consensus really valuable and what you give up when you get consensus. And um, I was very surprised that uh, there wasn't any dissent at the beginning of the conference to turn into consensus. And it was that initial surprise about what these conferences were about that led me into medicine. And um, I thought at first I was going to write a book on medical consensus conferences. and But that led me into, this was the late 90s, into seeing what happened to them after the birth of evidence-based medicine. And that itself led me into further things such as um, uh, narrative medicine and translational medicine. So in the end, it ended up being a book about four recent medical methods. Could you say a word about the the relationship between, you know, what you call the epistemology of medicine and um, this broader social epistemology that you've been working in for a while? Sure. Um, Well, social epistemology, broadly speaking, is looking at aspects of knowing that are about more than individual minds. So they would include include things like trust, um, and it would include things like collaborative research, and it would include things like uh, shared standards by a scientific community. Um, And... Uh, obviously consensus conferences are a social epistemic institution. So they really attracted me for that reason. Um, The other um, epistemologies of medicine that I look at are not so obviously social, Um, but uh, they do have social aspects. And um, I uh, really think of the whole project as um, a project in applied epistemology of science, medicine being a kind of applied science. Um, so it's more general than just social epistemology, but social epistemology is a big piece of it. Okay. Um, so as you mentioned, um, you explore uh, four different methods um, of I guess, very broadly put, um, translating scientific results um, into medical practice in some way. Uh, mm-hmm. or at least that's the, the goal is to get from somehow from the lab bench to the bedside, although as you note in the book, it can also go in the other direction. But you know, that's the relationship that, that we're worried about from an epistemological point of view. Um, and as you also say, that the four methods... Um, they have obvious aspects, and then they have odd aspects. Um, so maybe we can start with the me- the method that you just mentioned, the consensus conferences, because that does take up a number of chapters. Um, and it's also, I think, the oldest method. It's been around for nearly four decades. Right. Um, um, so maybe you could explain, you know, what, what those, uh, the consensus conferences are about, what their goals were, um, and, and what they ended up sort of doing? Okay. Well, um, what they were created to do and what they ended up doing turned out to be 
somewhat different. Um, they were created at the National Institutes of Health in the 1970s. And there was concern at that time that although there were a lot of discoveries that were being made at government expense at the National Institutes of Health, um, they weren't being disseminated to the outside and uh, um, their status as knowledge was in question. And um, NIH uh, personnel felt that if they held a consensus conference, they could publish the results and they could say that some independent experts met as a group, looked at the research and saw that it was sound and therefore recommended whatever it is, hip replacement, um, screening mammography. Mm -hmm. And that this would go out to clinicians, um, it would go out to the public, it would go out to insurance um, agents and so on. And it would um, uh, sort of uh, uh, put a stamp of approval on the research and say that it was ready to be used in practice. And um, they were very careful at the NIH about setting up a consensus conference that would be as fair as possible. So um, all the people who sat on the panels were not NIH employees. They were independent experts. Um, if they had published in the area, they were told uh, that they could not uh, serve on the panel because they had already expressed an opinion. So they wanted people who hadn't already declared an opinion in print. Um, and uh, they brought them all to Washington and had them meet for two and a half days. The first day was usually spent listening to experts in the field who had published and who had particular views, and they would testify like witnesses. And um, then the panel would uh, seclude themselves and produce a consensus statement that was delivered to the press on the third day. So it was a bit of drama about it. It was open to the public. Um, and um, it was extremely well-received. Uh, people thought it was terrific. The people who participated in it thought it was great. Um, the NIH felt very happy. And lots of organizations and countries copied it. Mm -hmm. So the idea of bringing neutral people together to consensus was just very appealing. And it still is when, you know, if, if I say to somebody, all the experts agree that I get your attention. Mm -hmm. um, so um, this was just a particular choreographed example of expert agreement over three days that seemed manageable, that people could do it, and um, that became adopted in throughout the first world. So uh, that's the initial idea. The reception and the way it developed emphasized slightly different things. So it rapidly became clear when they organized a consensus conference about something that was still really scientifically uncertain, that if they came to consensus. The consensus wasn't well received. And sometimes they couldn't come to consensus. Mm -hmm. So it really wasn't that good at making a consensus when there wasn't one already in the scientific community. Mm -hmm. And then the question came, well, what were they for? <laughs> and they embraced another 
purpose of them, which was dissemination. So the idea was that although the scientists who were involved in the research knew that this, you know, was a state of the field, that clinicians didn't. So regular clinicians who weren't far from research institutions, so that this would serve as a way to inform them. And the NIH, for example, produced brochures, and then they published their um, uh, results of consensus conferences in journals. And eventually, when the web was developed, they put things out on the World Wide Web. So they put a lot of their effort into dissemination. Um, Another thing that happened with consensus conferences, not at NIH, but elsewhere, was that the consensus is focused less on the science and more on the policy. So um, the science might have been fairly clear, but whether or not a country wanted to adopt a technology or wanted to recommend um, uh, a medical practice to to the whole country and cover it, um, that could be up for grabs. So some consensus conferences focused more on the ethical and the political. And um, I would say the consensus conferences seem to be a more successful model for that kind of deliberation. So better for political, social, ethical deliberation than for coming to conclusion on a pure scientific matter. Okay, because you, you do mention the, uh, the Danish model. Right. Um, um, yes, the Danish model is actually what many people think of as consensus conferences. And I always enjoy pointing out that they have a much longer history and, in fact, started in the United States as a model of expert consensus. But in Denmark... Um, although they started with the NIH model, they uh, turned it into a model of public democratic deliberation. So they weren't particularly interested in just inviting the experts. It was a matter of public policy and of ethics, and they wanted the society, the lay people, to have a say. And there is a tradition there of much more uh, democratic participation by the public. So, in fact, that's what they turned the conference into. Um, It still was three days. Mm -hmm. It still had experts testifying. But the panelists were all lay people. And the panelists produced a report that then went to government to feed into legislation. Do do you think that sort of thing could work here Here. in in the United States? People have tried, Um, and um, uh, my impression is that it hasn't worked here, and for a couple of reasons. One is that the society in the U.S. is extremely diverse, and certainly much more diverse than Denmark was in the 1980s and 90s. Um, And so getting what is seen as a representative panel is more of a challenge. And any way in which panels look not representative or not perfectly objective, anything like that can get people to reject the conclusion. So there's real, it's really important 
for these panels to look from the outside to the people who will receive the, the knowledge or the policy as though they can be thoroughly trusted. So that was one thing. Another thing is that uh, the U.S. is not that unified in terms of um, healthcare or technology policy that um, uh, uh, the one uh, consensus can really affect a whole, say, healthcare institution. So um, uh, we don't have universal health care. So even if the NIH makes a consensus statement, it's really up to all the various healthcare organizations to um, create their own policy in response to that. Mm-hmm. Um, there isn't a single place where, where policy is done. So because there's just more disunified governance in the United States and more, more private institutions, if, uh, consensus conferences are not going to have as much of an effect. Have, I, I've just been thinking recently of the, uh, the vaccine controversy. Mm-hmm. Um, was, has there been a consensus conference here about that? About specifically the autism vaccine conference? Uh, Well, if there has been, I don't know. But just, um, yeah, people refusing to give their children vaccines. Yeah, that's interesting. So far as I know, there's been no consensus conference on vaccination. Um, Although what there has been is, is similar things, such as you know, the groups, professional groups like uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics and so on, mm-hmm. coming out and making statements, um, which really are joint statements. They didn't need a consensus conference. And actually, the, the science of vaccination is pretty straightforward. Um, but there's still a place for an authoritative voice and um Statements that are released by professional organizations are consensus statements. Mm-hmm. Okay, so well, I mean, this there's one there's a question. Uh, I guess I should should bring it up now because it does come up fairly early in the book in relation to consensus conferences. Um, uh, but just this general issue of of lack of physician uptake. Yeah, you know where. Um, e- even where there's there may be a consensus or not, as the case may be, actually translating this into into real practice um, is something as as you put it, it's something we're still struggling with. And um, so you can have these professional organizations, you know, give what are in effect consensus, uh, you know, provide that um, that uh, epistemic oomph to the the scientific results to to make it you know this this is what the results say and we should do such and such um and yet still there's this um struggle to for for physicians to actually um you know, for for this to actually impact uh physician practice um can can you say something about about that that struggle and and, right. and why right it turns out that um, on average, it takes 10 years for um, physicians to change their practice. Wow. Um, it's a long time. And um, 
at the time the consensus conferences were invented, they thought all they had to do was tell them what the science said, and then they would change their practice. And it didn't happen that way. Um, uh, it's very hard to change practice. Um, over the years, it's become more clear what it takes to change practice. And it takes, um, sometimes it takes incentives. If um, uh, there are financial incentives for following the new practice or um, there is, say, lack of coverage for doing the old stuff, um, then people change fairly quickly. Right. Um, another thing that helps is personal contact with people who um, who recommend changing. So you don't read about it in a journal. That's not enough. But what is enough is if your head of department says they've just been to a conference and this is what they want to do and um, they've seen the evidence and they really like it and they're instituting it and they will be watching you what you do in the future. So individual networks of people who are known to one another help in spreading a disseminating a new technology. Okay, so... Um... And then one one final question, I guess, about about the consensus conference model. Um, you mentioned the problem of bias, various forms of um, you know groupthink or, or <laughs> testimonial injustice, um, and other uh, professional professional biases. Right? I think you gave right. a nice example of the the chiropractors who who not surprisingly recommended chiropractic you know, methods for treating certain um, conditions. Um, can you say something about the, the problem of bias in that particular context? Yeah. Um, well, you know, as I said at the beginning, the NIH model and the NIH model, it was set up to try to avoid as much bias as possible. And while it did avoid some biases, like the biases of confirmation bias, people who had already written and taken sides, would obviously be resistant to change. Um, it wasn't necessarily good at handling other biases. So um, all group processes have a dynamic. And um, sometimes people can agree just because there's someone in the group who talks very loud or has enormous charisma. <laughs> and um, there are ways to prevent that from happening. But the NIH consensus conferences were not conducted with any um, expert understanding of group process. Um, so they could well be accused of um, uh, maybe coming to conclusions that had more to do with the dynamics, the personal dynamics of the individuals on the panel than with the scientific matter at hand. So, um, when whenever people didn't like the result of a consensus conference, they tended to say those things, um, or they would say things like, "Oh, you know, um, these this is just a group of old boys from East Coast institutions." And one uh, one researcher, uh, Trisha Greenhalgh, has has called consensus conferences "gobsat," meaning good old boys sat around a table. <laughs> um, and um, so all of those are concerns, um, and different consensus conferences 
programs have tried to address them in different ways. Um, the Institute of Medicine, which still holds consensus conferences, um, tries to address them by inviting people on the panel who have known biases and striving for what they call a balance of bias. Um, so they'd be sure to represent all the different positions. And that's a different way of handling bias than the NIH, who tries to remove all known bias. Um, so um, I think that we, well, we don't know enough about how groups deliberate and what can be used to improve deliberation, but some of the more sophisticated consensus conference programs have um, been more sophisticated about the group process that they engage in. For example, uh, getting people to take a position before deliberation um, as well as after it seems to help people avoid things like anchoring to whoever else speaks. So there are ways, there are ways to address at least some of the biases. Mm. Okay. So, um, the, the next method that you, that you turn to is evidence-based medicine, which is kind of a buzzword these days. Mm. Um, and you, um, you say that a better name for it is actually uh, evidence hierarchy medicine. So, um, uh, maybe you can explain what what you mean by that. Okay. Well, when you say evidence based medicine, everybody nods their heads, and it, it's a little bit of a puzzling term because yeah. it's a, it sounds like it's new, but hasn't medicine always been evidence based? At least since the late nineteenth century and the birth of scientific medicine. Right. That's so, that's always been my kind of you know lay attitude. Basically, is isn't it always? I mean. At least in the right. past 100, 200 years, it is evidence-based, isn't it? It has been. And um, uh, I think that, uh, in fact, they've, what they've done is they've taken a term that it seems you couldn't say no to <laughs> and appropriated for something a little bit more specific, which I call evidence hierarchy medicine. And it is looking at the evidence in a systematic way and um uh, regarding some kinds of evidence as more reliable than other kinds of evidence. And we do that anyway. Um, you know, we regard um, something that is uh, a testimony from a direct witness as stronger evidence than hearsay. And we regard testimony by 20 expert witnesses as stronger evidence than one. Um, so, we do make distinctions about strength of evidence, and um, and this is an attempt to do so in the context of clinical trials. So randomized control trials, um, especially those in which there is blinding of a treatment, are viewed as the best possible evidence. And that's because there is the least possibility of bias. Um, there is more possibility of bias in observational trials. Um, but there's a possibility of bias in all trials. And um, our experience has shown that observational trials are still pretty good, even though randomized controlled trials might be better. Um, 
So nobody quite knows how to weigh the different levels of evidence, you know, how much of the best you need and whether a lot of middling evidence could outweigh a little bit of best evidence. Those are debates within evidence-based medicine. But the actual hierarchy, that the randomized controlled trials are at the top, the observational somewhere in the middle, and then the things at the bottom are things that are mm, not very evidential at all. There are things like, um, well, sometimes they put consensus of experts in the bottom, <laughs> which is funny because of uh, the, the great importance of consensus conferences um, at the time that evidence-based medicine came into being. So that was a smack in the face for consensus conferences. Another thing they put at the bottom is sometimes clinical experience and um, unsystematic clinical experience. So careful to say that. So um, if if a physician has documented carefully all their experience, that's fine. But if they're what they're doing is saying, well, I once had a patient who and they use that, that's more problematic mm -hmm. um, because it may not be representative of um, the medical situation at all. Um, another thing they put on the bottom is what's called um, uh, psychophysiological rationale or mechanistic reasoning, and that's um, how plausible the intervention sounds from a scientific point of view. And you would think that might be valued highly, but in evidence-based medicine, it's at the bottom. Hmm. So, okay, so, I mean, you can, I can imagine that, uh, that clinicians, you know, might object to this. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the television program House, where he makes all these incredible diagnoses based on, you know, his own intuition in, in effect. Um, right. And so there's a, a, you know, not just in, in TV land, but there's also this sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, model, if, uh, not an unscientific model of the doctor as having some special insight, um, which this, you know, basing it on these large randomized trials, uh, you know, that seems to completely you know, contradict that and say, no, you know, your own clinical experience really is, is kind of low on the hierarchy. Mm -hmm. um, you know, have, have, has there been more conflict, you know, in terms of... You've, you've put your finger on it. That oh. has been the reaction of many clinicians yeah. to evidence-based medicine. It's also been the reaction of a number of philosophers of medicine and medical ethicists, um, who have said that things like, you know, um, people aren't statistics um, or the there's a the book by uh, a uh, woman called Catherine Montgomery who um, wrote a book called How Doctors Think. And she just thinks doctors have what she calls a je ne sais quoi, good doctors. <laughs> they have this special intuition and um you can't say what it is, but it's not science. Um, so there are many um, people who have reacted to evidence-based medicine with claims that this is, does not capture the important skills of the clinician. Um, and um, 
I I read a lot of that literature and I found some of it um, uh, compelling and some of it less compelling. But in the book, I try to understand what motivates these reactions and why it's important for people to make the claim that doctors have a special je ne sais quoi um, and why it's important for many people to claim that there's an art as well as a science of medicine. Um, So um, that really leads to the third uh, section of the book, which is about narrative medicine. Um, And I, I use narrative medicine as an example of uh, humanities methods that people have argued are needed in addition to evidence-based medicine in order to be a good physician. Okay, well, there's, um, so you mentioned this art of medicine, and it is, you know, one of the controversies that I'm sure you're aware of in in philosophy of science is, has been the question, you know, is medicine a science? I mean, it's kind of one of your basic, uh, right. you know, the basic questions that you do in a, in a course of that sort. Um, and, um, I, and I guess kind of evidence-based medicine kind of, um, you know, pushes on that, that issue of the, of is medicine a science or an art or, you know, should we even just throw away this dichotomy, which is, I think your position. Right. Um, so, uh, can you can you say something about that that kind of traditional way of thinking about medicine as as not really being a science, kind of having this art part, but you know, right. and this tension between the two aspects that you don't find in like in just the science. Um, yeah, when I was looking for what what is meant by saying that medicine is an art, mm. I came across a number of different things. Some of what people meant by it was um, that every individual is different and that you need to tailor your scientific knowledge, which is about generals, to individuals. Right. Um, And I thought about that. That seemed reasonable. But it seemed to me that philosophy of science these days um, is well aware of that. And in fact, um, the work of Nancy Cartwright and John Dupre, people like that, have argued that um, uh, science isn't as full of generalities as we used to think around the time of Newton. And um, uh, and Nancy Cartwright has even said, you know, the laws of nature are not true. Right. Um, so the fact that that people have been concerned that medicine is about particulars hasn't led me to think that that means it's anything any less scientific. Right. Um, so then I thought, well, then there's this whole side of the literature that talks about medicine as addressing human suffering. So the goal of medicine is not simply the health of the patient, but to address the suffering of the patient. So there's this additional piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think if you, if you think that's a goal of medicine, then you're doing more than you're doing um, in uh, addressing than addressing specifically health issues. Um, so uh, that, but then a lot is required of a doctor, um, and um, 
we could have a conversation about, you know, what what we think the duties of doctors are. But many physicians and many people still have this romantic idea of the doctor and the doctor-patient dyad as a place where healing takes place. Right. Um, in this little unit of two people. Um, and it's an old model, and it's a model that's cross-cultural. I would say the only thing that's a little different these days is that the doctor and the patient are more on an equal level. There's more democracy in the relationship. But there's still a huge expectation out of the doctor-patient dyad. And um, I think it's a kind of a romantic view. I don't think it's most of medicine. And um, and I think there are many places outside of medicine, um, resources outside of medicine, where we get to address suffering. Um, so expecting your doctor to make meaning out of your suffering is um, maybe um, uh, more than more than they're paid to do, mm. um, or even trained to do, um, and that we should move to a model of. Um, having a number of caretakers that contribute different things to our health and our well-being. Hmm. That's that's interesting because um, I, I was just thinking. Um, I mean, Oliver Sacks, who you know passed away recently, uh, sort of brought back this idea of uh, um, you know listening to the patients. And, um, uh, sorry, learning, learning from them, uh, their perspectives on what was going on with them and, and things like that. And, and, and this was somehow maybe healing, as you put it, maybe just illuminating in terms of diagnosis. Um, uh, you know, it wasn't that it played into this romantic, uh, narrative that, that you just mentioned, Yes, I'm glad you mentioned Oliver Sacks because I was a huge fan of his. I've read all his books. Um, and what I enjoyed was the level of detail that he had and the way in which he seemed to be able to evoke the experience of his patients. Um, and, um, yes, it it did depend on a lot of time that he spent with his patients. And um, it illustrated the strengths of the narrative method. Um, so while I think that the doctor-patient dyad and uh, is a little bit dated in itself, I think some of the methods that have come out of focusing on that, looking at the narratives of patients and looking at the experience of patients have a lot to contribute to healthcare. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, I always read a little bit of Oliver Sacks in my classes to give students a sense of what a phenomenological approach can bring to medicine. So the um, uh, the okay, so the narrative medicine method, which um, actually we didn't talk about translational medicine, um, right? Maybe we can circle back to that but since we're on the narrative one um uh you know one of the questions there is that you know again this is some maybe perhaps somehow less 
less objective or, or, you know, the patient could be just fabricating things. Um, uh, you know, how does that, you know, how can, how can narrative really help? I mean, it seems to be, you know, what, whatever it might be, make them feel better or something in some, you know, some sense, but, um, uh, how do people who are proponents of that method kind of address that, that issue? What do you, what do you think about, about the contribution of narrative medicine? Um, I think it's important. Um, uh, I've seen four different things that come out of the narrative method. One is simply listening to the patient um, and uh, the benefits that that brings in terms of information that the physician gets, um, as well as um, uh, witnessing that the patient has. So that would be a piece of addressing suffering, witnessing it. Mm-hmm. The second is um, uh, the physician in the process of listening to the patient um, can develop empathy which can be a helpful guide uh, for treatment. Um, The third is that sometimes the physician can do detective work. And this is something that Rita Sharon, who's probably the best known proponent of narrative medicine, talks about. Um, She pays attention to things like the tone and the things that might be left out of the story and so on to piece together a narrative that reveals more than what's on its surface. So she uses techniques of literary criticism to listen to her patients and to figure out, for example, that instead of um, a, a pancreatic cancer, which a patient is afraid that they have, it turns out what they have is suicidal wishes, which need to be addressed. Um, So that kind of, Detective work is one of the things that narrative can facilitate. Um, And the final thing that narrative can help with is the making of meaning for patients, is the helping them put together a story of the role of their illness in their life um, and what it means. Mm. So the, the... The third one, actually, that you talk about in in terms of the order in the book, but um, is translational medicine, which is another, in a way, a a buzzword recently. Um, uh, Can you tell us something about that? I mean, what's what's innovative about translational medicine? Um, Well, um, translational medicine started in the early 2000s, and if you look at the things that happened before then, a couple of things. First of all, the 90s is the era that evidence-based medicine begins and gets very big. Mm -hmm. Secondly, the 90s is the Human Genome Project and the um, expectation that this project is going to deliver medical cures in the near future. And there was a lot of hype about it and... um, Uh, a lot of disappointment when early attempts to um, cure diseases using genetic technologies failed miserably. 
Um, and when Jesse Gelsinger, a patient in one of these genetic trials, died of the intervention. So um, people began to see that the knowledge that they got from sequencing the genome wasn't rapidly turning into useful medicine. And they used the word translation to try to capture what they wanted, which was to translate the basic research, which had progressed, into the clinical applications, which were not there yet. Um, that's, that's the idea. Um, it's not a new idea. Um, it's not new in that uh, doctors have always tried to turn their knowledge of how the body works into clinical applications. And it's never been straightforward. So if you read the history of the development of insulin, there was a lot of understanding of what insulin did before it was uh, developed as a treatment for diabetics and a lot of dogs died along the way. Mm. Um, so it's not new that our knowledge should take a while to translate into practice. Um, but I think that um, it may have felt new to those who in the 90s were so very optimistic about um, the outcomes of uh, um, genetic, uh, of sequencing the genome. The other piece, I think, is evidence-based medicine because evidence-based medicine um, uh, has a, the highest level of evidence, um, the randomized controlled trials. And those are actually stage three clinical trials. A lot has to happen before you get to stage three. And because evidence-based medicine was so rewarded, mm -hmm. people uh, felt that that's what they had to do. Um, and that the stage one and the stage two and the before stage one, the animal trials and all of this, that wasn't being rewarded. Um, so uh, people came to think that perhaps the incentives were off and that they should reward earlier stages of research. And um, the NIH announced this translational medicine initiative in the early 2000s. Um, and this was copied in Europe as well. So it was uh, part of what they called the roadmap mm -hmm. um, for uh, progress in the medical sciences. Um, let me just let me let me probe into one one issue that that kind of came up a little bit. Um, uh, the business, I guess, of of medicine, of, of research. Um, you know, there's been recent uh, worries a lot about the effects of uh, big pharma, you know, m money, uh, uh, trials being um, paid for by big pharmaceutical companies as opposed to the NIH. Um so basically a switch from public publicly funded research that affects the pub that has the potential for medical benefit um to privately funded and um i was just wondering 
how does that, in your view, um, how is that affecting, I mean, that's sort of a neutral word, distorting, disrupting, um, this this process of of transfer of, you know, results to practice um, and in general, I mean, the, the way uh, the knowledge, you know, medical knowledge is being is being produced. Now, it's kind of a, a vague question, but it's it's the, the idea is just um, how has the, the change in funding and not just of expectations from the 90s with genetics and, and, all, mm-hmm. and the genome. Right. But the actual business of it, I mean, one of the one of the features of the of the whole genome project and, all, and related things was it, it began with uh, initially with with some uh, legal fights about uh, who would own parts of the genome or the methods for decoding. And, you right. know, there was a lot of of, uh, you know, private uh, private enterprise issues that kind of entered into uh, this um, this whole project, as opposed to you know the government saying no, anything you find out about the genome is 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 public property. Right. Right. So there's along with the advent of the translational medicine, there's also seems to be an advent of privatization of the research. Yes. And I was just wondering if you could. You know, say how what what you think that concurrent sort of um, development, what what effect that seems to be having on on the way the translation from research to clinical practice, you know, happens. Um, well, it's a huge factor, um, and I'm actually beginning to work on a paper on that very topic at the moment. Um, but one way in which it comes up in the book is in the um, uh, evidence-based medicine chapters um, when talking about um, the reliability of clinical trials. And uh, it turns out that if a stage three, that, that is a, a um, randomized control trial, that is a high-quality trial, is funded by a pharmaceutical company, it's three times more likely to show positive results for the intervention than if it's publicly funded. Mm-hmm. Now, that's just extraordinary because, you know, these are stage three, phase three trials. These are um, randomized. They're blinded. Um, you would think that the funding would make no difference because the methodology was so good. But actually, the funding makes a huge difference. And there are various theories about why. Um, One of the theories is that the uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, still manage to bias the trials in various ways. For example, they make sure that the drug that is used to compare their new drug to is in a very low dose, so it won't be terribly effective. Um, or they um, cherry-pick which endpoints they're going to look at um, so that they'll look at the endpoints that are improved and they'll ignore the ones that aren't. Um, and some people even talk of there being an arms race, something like an arms race between the FDA that tries to maintain 
the standards and the objectivity of trials and the pharmaceutical companies who come up with more and more creative ways to um, prejudice the outcomes of trials that look like they had very good methodology. Um, so, I mean, some of this is, is, I would say, explicit misconduct. Other things are more kind of passive. There are things like, well, if, if the uh, intervention wasn't successful, you just don't publish. So um, a lot of interventions that are tried are in the file drawers. Right. And um, that's not ideal because then people may try to repeat them. Um, so, um, and because then people don't find out what, which interventions fail. Um, so I think it's a huge problem. And, um, most, most philosophers, most, most public health, uh, uh, practitioners, they, they just say, well, we really, it would be much better if the government funded all the research. And um, maybe what we should do is have the pharmaceutical companies like pay a tax and have all the testing done at NIH. Mm. That would be a huge revolution, and I'm all for it. Um, but I think it's about as likely as universal health care is in the United <laughs> States. So I'm trying to think of other methods um, that could be used to improve the um, the evaluation and the objectivity of privately funded research. Okay, um, so we've we've kind of talked about all of the the different methods um, involved in in creating uh, medical knowledge, um, and and in the end, you you conclude uh, a position that you call an untidy methodological pluralism. Um, so can you can you say a word about what what that sort of ultimate assessment amounts to? Oh sure. Um, so yes, actually, I call it I think disorderly, untidy methodological pluralism. <laughs> and then um, I realized that that if I had an acronym for that, it would be dump, and it, it's not <laughs> a very pretty acronym. So I didn't use it. Um, but what I was trying to convey is that there isn't a single scientific method in medicine. There are many. Um, and the four I've looked at are just four of a number of possible methods. So that's the pluralism piece. Um, and the disorderly and untidy part is the, you know, we're never quite sure which method to use for various things. The methods, you know, could be used to uh, address the same issue and come out with different conclusions. And one of the examples I give is uh, the discussion over mammography, uh, screening mammography, which I think has been uh, fractious in part because of the different methods that uh, people who've taken sides have been using. Um, a pluralism would be more orderly if um, they used methods just in particular domains. So, oh, you know, just use one method. And when you're, you're in um, cardiac medicine and another method when you're in psychiatry. But it's, my claim is it's a lot messier than that. 
um, that it's not clear what domains these methods apply, and they sometimes apply in the same domains, and then they can clash. So um, uh, there's also no hierarchy when when there's of methods that when there are, there's a pluralism, people often try to simplify that by having some kind of hierarchy and saying that you know some methods are better than others. So if evidence-based medicine and and narrative medicine both say one thing, then um, maybe we should listen to evidence-based medicine more because it's more reliable. Well, the book argues against that. It argues against having a hierarchy. And it says when you have a clash, you're just going to have to do more research. Um, but you cannot decide it based, based on the methods alone. Okay. And um, I think we have time for one more substantive question I suppose is um, so this has to do more with um, the rise of, of social media and the availability of, of information and misinformation on the web uh, you know you mentioned before that the doctor patient relationship is a bit more equal um, than it than it has been you know the doctor used to be this you know, supreme authority figure, and and nowadays not so much. But um, and one of the reasons for that is 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 the availability of of medical information um, on mm-hmm. the web, as well as people, you know, networking more about their conditions, and you know that that you know having support groups and discussing their symptoms, and and so on and so forth. Um, so I guess. How do you see social social media um, in this in this epistemological mix? Because um, uh, lay people now who who don't have any of the training, um, just to mention one example, you know, they can go and demand a particular treatment because they've heard it worked with these people and, and, you know, it should work for them or, you know, on very uh, thin evidential grounds, let's put it that way. Um, and that can also distort the whole process because doctors are getting it from their patients as well as, you know, whatever inducements the companies, you know, place on them. Um, so how do you, what do you, what do you think the, the net effect or what, how would you assess the role of, you know, media, social media, the net, um, Mm -hmm. on the whole, this whole issue of, 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 um, the creation and dissemination of, of medical knowledge. Um, well, overall, I'm positive about it. Um, I guess um, I have confidence that um, uh, there will be enough good knowledge um, out there. Um, Of course, there are some cases where that's not the case. But um, I'm thinking of um, patient advocacy groups for, say, rare genetic diseases who are banded together often over the Internet and formed um, uh, charitable organizations to fund research. And um, I think this is an enormously positive development, not just because of the funding, but because they've learned about the sciences and they often have things to say 
that are um, uh, meaningful and interesting to the scientists who are doing the research. Um, so that there can be a lay partnership. Um, uh, interestingly, this started before the internet and started at maybe the one of the the cases we know best is with the development of AIDS drugs and the gay community in the 1990s. Right. Um, and their advocacy and involvement in the research. Um, so uh, I, I look at that very positively, too. They argued with scientists that um, stage, stage three randomized controlled trials weren't absolutely needed um, to test AIDS drugs and that they could get useful data from other methods. Um, and that turned out to be life-saving, and it turned out uh, not to be a problem for the quality of the scientific research. So um, I'm I'm fairly positive about it. Okay. So um, last question: um, What? Where do you go from here? Is there? Are you following up? This book. I mean, you did mention something related, but um, is your what's your next project? Um, well, I have a lot of little projects at the moment, not one big one. Um, I'm thinking, as I said, about um, uh, fun- a pharmaceutical funding of research and how to handle the inevitable bias. And I have a paper that I'm working on called After Disclosure, uh, which points out that disclosure is um, – not the end of the discussion to find out that a pharmaceutical company has funded a study. We still need to know how to handle that information epistemically in evaluating the study. Um, so uh, that's one one paper I'm working on. And I'm also um, working on a, a small project in, um, in uh, hermeneutical injustice in psychiatry specifically, for Asperger's syndrome. Um, so using Miranda Fricker's ideas about epistemic injustice in the context of patient self-understanding um, in, on the autistic spectrum. Hmm. That sounds interesting. Well, they both do, actually. Um, but uh, I think we're, we are now out of time, so um, we'll have to discuss those at some future date. Um, I look forward to it. But, uh, well, thank you very much for talking about your new book. I've, I've really learned a lot from, from reading thank it and you. from talking with you. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Miriam Solomon, professor of philosophy at Temple University. We've been talking about her new book, Making Medical Knowledge, which is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.